0: Why this true-life account has remained anonymous and undated, we, don't, we just don't know. But this is what she wrote. It was one of the hottest days of the dry season. It was an unusually long, extended season. We had not seen rain in many, many weeks. The crops were dying. Cows had stopped giving milk. Creeks and streams were long gone back to the earth. It was an extremely dry season that would bankrupt several farmers before it was through. She continued, Every day, my husband and his brothers would go out about the arduous process of trying to get water to the fields. Lately, This process had involved taking a truck to the local water rendering plant and filling it up with water. But then severe rationing had cut everyone off. If we didn't see some rain soon, we would lose everything. It was on this day that I learned the true lesson of sharing and serving and witnessed the only true miracle I've ever seen with my own eyes. She goes on, I was in the kitchen making lunch for my husband and his brothers when I saw my six-year-old son, Billy, walking toward the woods. He wasn't walking, though, with the usual carefree abandon of a youth, but with a much more serious purpose. I could only see his back. He was obviously walking with a great effort, trying to be as still as possible. Minutes after he disappeared into the woods, he came running out again, back toward the house. I went back to making sandwiches, thinking that whatever task he'd been doing was complete. But moments later, however, he was once again walking in that slow, purposeful stride toward the woods. And this activity went on for an hour. Walk carefully to the woods, run back to the house. Walk carefully to the woods, run back to the house. Walk carefully to the woods, run back to the house. Finally, I couldn't take it any longer. So I crept out of the house and I followed him on his journey, being very careful all the time not to be seen as he was obviously doing important work and didn't need his mummy checking up on him. Here's what I saw. He was cupping both hands in front of him as he walked, being very careful not to spill the water that he held in them. Maybe two or three tablespoons. Tiny hands. So I sneaked close as he went into the woods. He kept walking, branches and thorns, slapping his little face. but he, he, didn't, he didn't even try to avoid them. He had a much higher purpose. As I leaned in to spy on him, I saw the most amazing sight. Several large deer loomed in front of him. Billy walked right up to them. I almost screamed for him to get out of the way. A huge buck with elaborate antlers was dangerously close, but the buck didn't even threaten him. Matter of fact, he didn't even move as Billy knelt down to the ground. And there I saw a tiny fawn lying on the ground, obviously suffering from dehydration and heat exhaustion. And it lifted its little head with great effort to lap up the water cupped in my beautiful boy's hands. When the water was gone, Billy jumped up to run back to the house again, and I hid behind a tree. I followed him back to the house to a spigot that, that, that we had purposely, some time before, shut off. Billy opened it all the way up, <laughs> and a small trickle began to creep out. He knelt there, letting the drip, 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 slowly fill up, his makeshift cup, (laughs) as the sun beat down on his little back. And it became clear to me at that moment the trouble he'd gotten into for playing with the hose the week before, the lecture he received about the importance of not wasting water, the reason he didn't ask me to help him, It took almost 20 minutes for the drops to fill his ends, and when he stood up and began the trek back, I was there in front of him, and his little eyes just filled with tears, and he said, I'm not not wasting, and as he began his walk, I joined him with a small pot of water from the kitchen. I let him tend to the fawn. I stayed away. It wasn't my job. It was his. I stood on the edge of the woods watching the most beautiful heart I've ever known, working so hard to save another life. And as the tears that rolled down my face began to hit the ground, they were suddenly joined by other drops and more drops and more drops and more drops. And I looked up at the sky It was as if God himself was weeping with pride at my little Billy. Some will probably say, even here, ah, that was just a a huge coincidence. Miracles don't really exist. It was brown to rain sometimes. Sometime it was going to start. Well, I can't argue with that. And I'm not going to try, she said. All I can say is the rain that came that day saved our farm. Just like those actions of one little boy saved another life. Now let's discover this morning the art of servanthood. What does it mean to be a servant, and how can you be a servant? You see, being a servant is an art. Why is that? Why is being a servant an art? Because art is something beautiful. It is something meant for others to see and enjoy. Art is a creation that is a tribute to its creator, When we look at a piece of art, we see the final piece. We see what the Creator wants us to see. The same is true with us as Christians. We're God's piece of art, a tribute to the Creator. The one thing that's different, though, is that we are constantly being formed and shaped into a better piece. So what is a servant? And why is being a servant of God such an art? According to Webster's Dictionary, a servant is a person paid to wait on another or others. Maybe in a family setting, maybe in business, maybe in some other endeavor. Now let me take you back to the Old Testament, and in those days, being a servant was a little bit different than the definition of Mr. Webster. The Israelites were servants, or called slaves, of the Egyptians for a very long time. And they suffered much cruelty, much hardship, much punishment, harsh conditions, until God delivered them from their bondage. Throughout the Scriptures, we're told, and this is a great lesson about serving, that even as a servant, we are to glorify God, even at the worst points in our lives. You are still, my friend, at the worst point of life, if you're a servant of God, you are still to praise God. Even you say but 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 pastor I'm 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 at a dead end job and I have a boss who's a total jerk. You're to work for God, not man. You're to lift up God, not man. You're to praise God for what you have, not man. Sometimes this is easy advice to give, but it's hard advice to follow. You see, I believe that Jesus knew that we were going to have trouble being a servant, and at times in our lives, it was going to be real difficult. So that's why he led us by example. Stay with me. In order to help us understand this concept a little better, Jesus not only talked about being a good servant, but he lived what he taught. I love that. It's important to realize that Jesus did not have to wash his disciples' feet. He did not have to be beaten and spit on and mocked and scorned and ridiculed. He didn't have to carry a cross. He'd been given the power to rule over the whole earth at any time. He could have made it all stop. But instead, listen to this, he chose to endure all of it. The pain, the suffering, the shame, the disgrace—all of it. Why? To save you and me from our sin. Amen. Matthew five fourteen and sixteen says, "You are the light of the world. A city that is on a on a hill cannot be hidden." And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or under a bushel. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Good, good Father. So in what way are you being a servant? How are you... Letting your light shine. And a message entitled, Service Three Ways. The first way is for significance. In the third chapter of Genesis, where it all starts, a story is told about the first man and the first woman falling from a position of total security in God and absolute significance. If anybody was ever significant, Adam and Eve win the contest. You see, their uh, significance, or their importance, if you want to call it, was absolute in the sense that God placed them in a position of authority over all creatures, and they enjoyed a daily hand-to-hand relationship with the Creator, and they met every day, and they talked, and they fellowshiped, and since that was lost, ever since that was lost, humans have been trying to regain that sense of significance through pride. Through selfishness, through ambition, through power, through self-love, through control over others, and a myriad of other ways. But Jesus' solution to the problem of lost significance is completely different than we would expect. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 20. I want to start to read at verse 20. You can read with me if you'd like. I'd really enjoy that or watch and listen. In Matthew 20, 20, we read, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, came to Jesus, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Hmm. And he said to her, What do you wish? (laughs) She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand, the other on the left, in your kingdom." But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. God the Father is in charge of that. Who's sitting where and who's at the table and who's not. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, the other ten, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. What are you doing? Jesus called them to himself, all of them, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they have referred to them as the heathen. so hello, heathen, They lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over men, over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, say it with me, let him be your... And whoever desires to be first among you, say it with me, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Wow, Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Take that one home and just soak it in. The problem we see here is the universal, never-ending human need for significance. And here we are in the year 2023, And it's still the great human need of this planet. Everybody and their uncle has an answer for how to gain significance. And really, nobody has the answer. We want to be important. James and John, disciples of Jesus, hey, shoulder to shoulder. With Jesus desired importance so much, they, they wanted to be important so much, they went and asked their mummy to obtain it for them. Huh? Yeah. This is called influence peddling, still going on and no, still going on. Hasn't stopped. Here's an interesting paradox: the sin of pride, listen carefully to this almost always leads to a loss of dignity. So just the thing you're looking for in that significance thing is just the thing you're going to lose, the dignity and the character that you really need. See, here's James and John's mother's solution to the problem of the lost significance from The garden of eden it would be a position of power for her sons that's verse 21 but jesus interpretation of the mother's request was that she wanted james and john to lord it over others just like the heathen now jesus correct solution to the problem of lost significance is threefold first redirect your ambition by serving others, that's verse 26. Then eliminate prideful desires to be first by becoming a slave, in other words, becoming last. That's a little humbling, isn't it? Actually, it isn't, it's very humbling. But isn't that funny that humility is the direct antithesis to pride? Eliminate the prideful desires to be first. Always got to be first. I've always got to be first. I've always got to win everything. I've always got to be over others. I've always got to be ahead. He said, how do you do that? By becoming a slave or last. Last. And then thirdly, imitate the one true leader. There's already been one true leader that the world has ever known. The most significant being in the entire universe, his name is Jesus Christ, and he did more to serve others in three years than anyone ever has in all of time or eternity. Jesus is teaching something here to them, and I hope he's teaching it to all of us. He's teaching God's answer to the human desire for significance. The answer's not found in accomplishment or ambition or pride. That just leads to the loss of significance, and that's what led to this loss of significance in the first place. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. Oh, oh, well, God, he might have said it, but I don't know if he really meant it that way, so we'll just take matters into our own hands here and whoops. It's not found in accomplishment or ambition, my friend, or pride or position. That's what led to the loss of significance, first of all. But it's found in God's approval. Are you living your life for God's approval? That's so important. That's so important. The servant seeks only the approval of the master. And that's why... The way to satisfy the human need for significance is not in greatness, but in servanthood. Those sins of pride and ambition and self-absorption are perversions of the real desire. And what's the real desire in every heart? In everyone's hearts. Satan and sinner alike. It is approval from God. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, I'm afraid to say. Even a lot of Christians probably are a little foggy here. But that's the number one. That's that's what it's all about, is approval from God. That's what we desire. You say, well, I want to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to have this, and I want to go there, and I want to be in a certain position, and I want to be liked, and I want to be adored, and I want to be obeyed, and blah, 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 blah. What you're really saying is, I want to be over others so I can lord it over them, and your real desire is approval from God. So in desiring to be a servant, we're not so much learning something new. It's not something new, but we are discovering who we really are. And I want to add this. We will find no significance in life apart from servanthood. Period. End of quote. quadrat demonstratum. There is no significance apart from servanthood. Any way you want to cut it. You see, servanthood is an acquired taste for many going to ask a question that's kind of silly. I would like you to respond. How many of you enjoy coffee? Don't get crazy. (laughs) The over-caffeinated don't have to answer this, just... Okay. How many of you like ice cream? Getting some people really riding with me now. Of those of you who like coffee, on, be honest here, and there may be a few exceptions. I know there would be, but maybe not two. How many of you enjoy coffee as a small, a very young child? That's what I thought. I, get, I see one hand. Okay, I saw that. I saw that hand. Make your way to the altar. I saw that hand. Okay. <laughs> But for those who enjoy coffee, your taste for coffee probably came with what we call the maturing of your palate. For many Christians, a heart of servanthood toward others does not come naturally, but it comes with the maturing. Of Christian character. It's not. It's this is going to come as good news to the people at Faith Community. It's not something you just like sign up for. Because we're the number one church in the world for sign ups, (laughs) right? No. No. A heart of servanthood towards others doesn't come naturally. You can say, well, I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't have that, and I can't serve others, and I'm not a servant, and blah, blah. No, no, no. It will come, but it will come with a maturing in that life of Christian character. In May, we all know what the month of May looks like. Looks nice today, doesn't it? In May of 1846... A traveling evangelist, now mostly forgotten in history. His name was James Coffee, and it wasn't C O F F E Y, it was C A U G H E Y, like coffee, and it was pronounced coffee. On his preaching tour, he visited a chapel in Nottingham, England, and he preached a sermon on the words that are recorded. I think you can get these in your notes in uh, in Mark 11:24. The words uh, in Mark 11:24 resonate. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you that's why we say praying believing. Whatsoever things you you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And so James Coffey preached that the key to this verse was to learn to desire God's desires. Boy, that's worth writing down. The key is to learn to desire God's desires and that God's foremost desire was that we develop the character of a servant to help the poor and to spread the gospel and to see that souls come to Christ and that the name of Jesus is lifted up well well in nottingham that day a young man kind of a gangly sort of guy was present at the service he'd been he'd been a christian for about 2 years but but, but by his own admission he'd kind of been drifting a little But that day in May, 1846, God spoke to this gangly young man through this simple evangelist, James Coffey. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and gave the young man a passion for desiring this thing called servanthood, and the young man acted on God's direction and he devoted himself to starting an organization and it was committed to the salvation of souls and the service to the needy and all the rest. Look, one simple sermon from Mark chapter 11 on desiring servanthood inspired the young, gangly William Booth to fulfill his destiny and he founded the Salvation Army. There isn't a person in this room who hasn't heard that title, the Salvation Army. Still prevalent and still very much powerful in its mission today. You ask, how do we desire servanthood? Listen, stop for a minute. We already do. You say, Bob, how do I I desire this thing called servanthood? You already do. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you haven't tuned in yet. You think we desire, we think we desire position, we think we desire fame, we think we desire uh, rulership, we think we desire the self-centered life, but in reality, you know what you desire? Same, Same thing I do, and the same thing everybody else in here does. We desire approval from God. And God's approval is manifest as He develops the character of His Son in us, This is the beautiful part. The character of Jesus can be developed in us. Everybody wants that. The character, then, of a servant. So what's our part? What's our part? Well, first, we need to spend time with God. If we're going to grow more into the image of Christ, we need to spend time. We need to become more like, because we do become more like those we spend the most time with. And secondly, we must be willing to say yes to God when he asks us to serve. A willing heart will stoke the flame of desire for servanthood. Are you willing? No matter what he asks, are you willing to say yes? Thirdly, we need to spend time with those who cheerfully serve. My word to you is, avoid all grumbling servants. You say, well, who would that be? Those are the people who are only happy if they're grumbling or complaining. Their kind of service will not teach you to desire servanthood, and that won't land you in a good place. And fourthly, here, <laughs> do not look at servanthood as a means to something greater. <laughs> it already is something greater. I don't care what you're doing, where you've been, how long you've been doing it, how much fame you've received. Listen, there's nothing like serving the living God. Nothing. So I want to ask you now, knowing what you know and being as as informed as you are and now being given the steps to take, can you possibly see yourself as a servant, or if you're already serving, as more of a servant. Can you imagine some ways that you could be a servant, maybe in the future? Maybe you've got a little growing to do yet, I don't know. Maybe you just haven't really found the niche yet, but God's preparing you, and you're open to all these things. So service today, three ways. And the first way is significant. Now, second way, service for others. I must say that on this Memorial Day Sunday, it is honorable and fitting this morning that we remember the sacrifice of our nation's great servants, the great veterans who gave their lives on battlefields abroad And yes, right here at home. By some estimates, nearly 1.3 million Americans have shed their blood and died for freedom's cause. borrowing a statement from Sir Winston Churchill, never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Still, and that is magnanimous. That is unbelievably... It's just incredible when you think of the lives that have been taken, the blood that's been spilled. Being the son of a World War II veteran, I feel deeply whenever I think of these things. But still, as magnanimous as this number is, do you know that it pales in comparison, and I'm not saying it's it's not unbelievable, it's not terrific, but it does pale in comparison to the number of men, women, and children who've given their lives for eternities, freedoms, what we call eternal cause. Let me explain. Michael J. McClyman many years ago wrote in a Christian, uh, in a Christian journal, He said this, and I quote, the total number of Christian martyrs during the 20th century is reported to be 45 million. He finished his thought by defining Christian martyrs as, again, quote, believers in Christ who lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. End quote. And you know, truth be known, only God knows how many more have shed their blood for the cause of Christ in these last 2,000 years. And it's fitting this morning that we likewise remember their sacrifice. And I want to say still more fittingly, and all of this is important, every piece of it that I've explained, even more fittingly, it's important that we remember the one that those Christians believed in who shed the purity of his blood for freedom's cause. For without the sacrifice of our risen Lord, we in America and many around the world would not enjoy the freedoms and the liberty that we love and that we know so well. Service three ways. First, for significance. Secondly, for others. And third, for the team. Or for the kingdom. Oh, 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 this just in, this just in. This is breaking news, breaking news just in, breaking news. Uh, Yeah, Turn it up, turn it up so you get it. Everybody, breaking news. You are needed in your church. Amen. Very weak. You are needed in your church. Amen. How often do you read the Bible? Don't have to answer. How often do you study the Bible? There is a big difference. How often do you read a passage like some of the old time, pastors use a kid around and say, well, this is the most famous and most popular chapter in all the Bible, and the greatest book that was ever written, 1 Chronicles. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hold that laughter. How many times have you read 1 Chronicles and read the 26th chapter and, went and have gone all the way down to the 18th verse? I didn't think so, so we're going to read it this morning. And I'll give you the background. At Parbar, westward. Say those next two lines with me if you would. Four at the causeway and two at Parbar. Thank you. Good job. It's not, it's not for God to so love the world he gave his only son. I know. And you thought that was the most off-quoted and most popular. But this is the most popular one here. Okay. First Chronicles 26, 18. So we'll all say it again together because you're starting to do a really great job. So let's say it. At Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. Amen? Can I have an amen? amen. No. Some people would amen anything, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. I've read that before. You Maybe you have. And since you read the Bible, because you've read it all through, I know, kiver to kiver, but, but it's, it's, you probably figured that it came in after you finished reading it. But I have read that before, but, but I didn't research that verse, you say. Well, good. Then I want us to dissect, dissect this, and then I want to analyze it. And now you're going to ask, what on earth is a parbar? Does anybody know? No. Actually, parbar... Oh, this is wonderful. Parbar was a, was a part of Jerusalem in the temple area. So let's call it a suburb, <laughs> okay? We're into the burbs today. One of the most important tasks assigned to the priestly personnel was controlling, listen to this, who came into the temple and all of that area that they called the temple, particularly into the inner circle. In other words, who came into the sanctuary, which, which was the holy place, uh, you see, defiling the anybody defiling the sanctuary? I mean, that was worse than murder. Seriously, defining, defiling the sanctuary with impurity required a sin offering and could bring punishment on the individual or maybe even on all the people. So the gatekeepers had to prevent unqualified intrusion. Now here's the backdrop of the story and the history. This is really King David giving instructions on the building of the great temple. See, he thought God wanted him to build a temple. Well, God gave him the blueprint, but God gave Solomon the contract. And so uh, King David here is preparing for the construction of the temple. I mean, in the minutest detail, what every priest would have to do, what every porter would have to do, what every member of the Levite tribe would have to do, what the guardians of the treasury would have to do. Oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, there was no temple. This was many, many, many years Before the temple was even constructed, and it wasn't completed until many, many, many years after David died. But he's getting everything in order, and this is what you do when you set up the temple that we're gonna build. (laughs) Now, there were a lot of valuable items in the temple lots of gold, lots of silver. And the temptation was always there. So the gatekeepers had to guard against people stealing or people bringing in things that would even defile the temple. Now there are four points that we can learn from 1 Chronicles chapter 26. I know you thought there wouldn't be anything, but jot these down. Point one, everyone has a place in God's service. It doesn't matter whether you're standing guard at the causeway Or you're over at Parbar, or you're inside the holy place, or you're the doorkeeper, or you're the money person. Everyone has a place in God's service. Aren't you glad? Are you in that place? Because everyone has a ministry. And when I say everyone has a place in God's service, I don't mean everyone has a favorite chair. I mean, you have a ministry. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. What? A ministry. A prayer warrior. I hear people say, oh, yeah, I can't do much. I'm only a prayer warrior. Only a prayer warrior. Well, God bless you. What? A ministry. You say, is it really? Do you know what happens when you pray for your church? Do you know what happens when you pray for our pastor and his family? Do you know what happens when you pray for the ministries of faith community? I mean, doing a ministry for the cause of Christ, something something to maybe maybe your ministry is something that's going to help someone maybe in some physical way maybe to be fed or maybe to keep warm in the winter or or to stay connected to humanity a lot of people are just cast out there and they they don't know where to turn so they don't turn someone wrote this even the strongest hands can lose their grip even the greatest of minds can become cloudy And even the biggest of hearts can break. So minister in love. Go out there and minister and be kind. Just always be kind and minister in love. Doing a ministry for the cause of Christ, something to help someone else, something to promote the love and the goodness and the kindness and the grace and the preciousness of Jesus just, just is so, is so enabled. It's just so wonderful. It's noble. Don't you ever say, Well, I'm just a prayer warrior, or I just help my neighbor, or I just go to the, to the food pantry, or I don't ever just anything. God bless you. Here's the second point we're still at Power Barn, there's still four over at the causeway. They're not moving. They're not moving. They're the real deal. Point two every job is important. Every job is important. Let's say it together. Every job is important. You know the old saying for lack of a shoe, the horse was lost. For lack of a horse, the battle was lost. For lack of winning the battle, the war was lost. What's that all mean? Little things cause great losses. January the 28th, the year 1986. Space shuttle Challenger. Wait, we could sit here and count them off. It wouldn't take very long. No, just over a minute. 73 seconds after liftoff. Exploding, disintegrating, vaporizing, bringing a devastating end to the spacecraft's tenth mission, and that you know, the disaster claimed the lives of all seven astronauts on board. Here's what's interesting. It was later determined that two small, Rubber o ring seals, which had been designed to separate the sections of the rocket booster, had failed. Can I remind you? Little things cause great losses. God is a God of order. How do I know? I'll tell you. My life verse, 1 Chronicles 26, 18. Four at the causeway and two at Parbar. I've I've memorized it. Has a lot of historical meaning. Has a lot of meaning if you like service. The causeway was a bridge that leads into the suburb. And at this crossover stood four guards. I can't prove it, but I can assume that they checked people before they could enter that part of the town. And, and I'm still amazed because here's David giving all these instructions for all these people in all these places. Man, the temple hadn't even been built yet, and he'll never see it. Solomon, Bathsheba's son. Is going to be the next king. Each of those kings reigned 40 years. It took Solomon seven years to build that phenomenal temple. You think that's something? It took him 13 years to build his own house. And that's another message on priority. Solomon, how's your building stuff going on? Well, pretty good. Pretty good. What's your house look like compared to the temple? Well, we won't talk about that. A 13-year absolute mansion compared to a seven-year temple. You see, only Jews could go into the holy place in the temple. Non-Jews could only go into the courtyard of the temple. And of course, you had to be qualified to be a guard. So, my friend, you are so important to God. He wants you to be part of his kingdom. Ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. If everybody in my church was like me, what would my church be? Kind of rhymes. Did you catch what I just said? Did, how many caught that? Okay, so you four, would you say it with me? Everybody that heard me say that. If everybody in my church was like What would my church be? Woo. Okay, heads back up again, all those that dropped. The third point we get from Parbar is that every Christian must be qualified. In this chapter, 1 Chronicles 26, you see this, starting in verse 5 and 6. Mighty men of valor, in verse 6, a reference to courageous men. Strong men, verse 7, a reference to persistent men. You can't quit. Quitters never win and, and winners never quit. You don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Instead, use it to wipe the sweat from your face because you're so busy ministering for God or use it to wash another's feet. I'm saying service! That could be the one great thing that's missing from your life that's causing you not to move on in growth, in Jesus. You don't give up. Able man, verse 8, that's a reference to being qualified. It means if God calls you to do something, he's going to give you what it takes and provide opportunities to learn what you need to know to do the job that he's called you to do. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. If you're a note taker, you need to get this in your notes. Ecclesiastes 9, 10. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There's no work, there's no device, there's no knowledge, and there's no wisdom in the grave. That's where you're going. So don't wait. And then the fourth point we get from Parbar, I love this, is that the greatest ability is dependability. Not availability. Dependability. I've had people say to me, listen, whatever you need, Pastor, uh, I'm available. I'm available. Availability, yeah. They may say, look, whatever you need, just give me a call. Just give me a call if you need me to do something. And they mean well, and I think they mean it when they say it, and you call them, and well, well, today's not a good day. I can't do it right now or this afternoon. See, something else has come up that they feel is more important and they choose to do it instead. So their availability, quote, doesn't accomplish anything. But if someone keeps their commitment, oh, I love that. People who are committed, they keep their commitment and you can depend on them, that's worth a whole lot. I'll tell you, we got, I'll give you one great example right here at Faith Community. And that's the, the members of our worship team. Wow. Wow. That's way beyond availability. That's dependability. Just way beyond availability. Now, let's go back to Parbar and we'll finish up. The four that are over there guarding the causeway and the two who stay at Parbar were dependable. They did their job. They didn't have an excuse when it came time for them to do something. They had their place. They were in it. We have our place. We should be in it. Here it is in a nutshell. Let God use you. Dr. DeHaan used to say, bloom where you're planted. Yes, 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 what? In this time of year, what a great theme, huh? Bloom where you are planted. And so I ask, are you a servant? Are you a servant? Are you serving? Can I really couldn't imagine a servant who isn't serving. Well then, let me ask it this way. Are you willing to serve? And are you going to serve for significance? Or are you going to serve for others and for God's kingdom? And by the way, the ball is in your court. It's your serve.